HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So malama aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview people who inspire me with the work they do, the lives they live, and they're people who I can learn from. And today, I have the most extraordinary pair, Fabienne Toback and Karis Jagger, who have created an extraordinary docu-series for Netflix, and it's called High on the Hog. I watched every single second, and I just felt so hard in love. I learned so much from this story of how African-American cuisine transformed the food that we eat in America. I loved being in Africa with all of you. I loved learning about the food in Benin. I loved being in the American South. But most of all, I learned about Black culture and the food ways that I've taken for granted in some ways and it opened my eyes. I want to hear how the two of you who'd been doing lifestyle projects and working together for almost 10 years came upon this amazing and transformative idea. Oh, wow. Well, we're so thrilled to be here, Juan, and absolutely love that you love the project. Uh, we came upon the project, a really good friend of mine, Jeff Gordon-Near, journalist, was writing an article at the time for the New York Times, 
and he sent me the cover of the book. It's called High on the Hog by Dr. Jessica B. Harris. I sat down and read it in one sitting and absolutely was blown away by it. Karis read it, was also blown away by it. And that was the beginning of the the journey that we embarked on. Part of what attracted us, like I went to cooking school. Karis is hands down one of the best home cooks ever. We are serious foodies and we're black. There was so much of this history around food, reading Dr. Harris's book that we had no idea about. The level of like our culinary knowledge is pretty darn high that we didn't know any of these stories We were just like, oh my gosh, like the world needs to know these things. The world needs to know about these people that are deeply woven into the fabric of our nation's food, whose stories need a deeper telling. So that's kind of like, we read this, it seems so crystal clear to us, like, we have to make this series. We have to do this. It's important to have these narratives out in the world. When you read it, I'm just wondering, like, what were the visions that went through your head of translating the extraordinary work of Dr. Harris? How did you think to yourself, okay, like, this is on the page, but like, how am I going to imagine this into places to visit, conversations to have? Because there's a lot of translation of ideas into a very lively documentary. I think one of the things the book begins in Dan Topka Market, and I think Fabienne and I couldn't imagine not starting in Benin and going to Africa and seeing that incredible, beautiful, vibrant market there that we were just blown away when we got there and saw. And I think that there were so many stories in the book that we felt hadn't been told. And it seemed that there was a, a golden opportunity to tell these histories and also bring in a variety variety of new up and coming chefs and people in the food industry to connect the history and modern times together. I think that's what's particularly effective about the four parts is I love seeing Michael Twitty. I love seeing Jarrell Guy. What was it like to work with Dr. Harris on this project? Well, I mean, Jessica had done such a beautiful job writing the book and doing so much deep dive in history. I mean, that's been part of her life's work. So when we had the book, we used it as a blueprint for the series. So we felt like she had already done all this work and it was up us at this point to like kind of get in there and craft the series. I mean, she had laid it all out there for us already. She had a beautiful sense of calm and gravitas and warmth. And I thought in that first part, just having her there as Stephen Satterfield's partner was such a beautiful thing. Let's just talk about some of the things that you found most compelling, the stories that you wanted to tell that you didn't know. I think for me, one that I loved was Thomas Downing. I really didn't know the history of oysters in New York. I'm a huge oyster lover, and I didn't know the level of popularity that they had during that period. And also this man who was an incredible entrepreneur. And in addition to creating this high level establishment, serving oysters to high class whites and blacks, he was also underground railroading it at the same time. And that that was so fascinating to me. Am I right to say that he was serving in the establishment upstairs, he was serving whites and then downstairs, like it was in the same building that he was? Yeah, he was housing escaped slaves, you know, ushering them to freedom. And so that was uh, an eye opening story. 
for us to learn about. He purportedly sent oysters to Queen Victoria. What an interesting story that we don't hear. Never. And tell me about the current day oyster mother shucker. The real mother shucker. The real, sorry, the (laughs) real mother shucker. Didn't you love that part of him? I loved it so much. It was it was so great offering in Brooklyn to, you know, people that had never tasted oysters before. And he was saying, you know, it's like people love crab and people love shrimp. And yet, you know, they're not exposed to oysters. I mean, I think Omar Tate said the same thing. It wasn't until he was working in a restaurant in New York that he'd never had an oyster before. And his oyster stew was sublime. It seemed like double oysters. Can you describe Omar's dish? It was an unctuous, creamy oyster upon oyster stew with a kind of, I want to say an apple mignonette. Yeah, it was. It was an apple mignonette. That was a really special scene. I think that was the last scene that we shot before COVID shut everything down. It was a snowy night in New York and he read a poem outside. It was quite, quite just so beautiful. I'm just wondering because with like the sort of intense and dense evolution in food media over the last couple of years. I mean, do you feel like when you start out with this project and there were so many stories you wanted to tell and do you feel that in those two years, the media landscape has changed and the people who you're highlighting actually have had more of a chance to tell their stories? I mean, I think there was half the people that we had, Fabian and I keep insane spreadsheets of, you know, people that we love and are interested in talking to and that we wanted to have for the show and we hope to have in future shows. And so many of them now, you know, I open my food and wine or my Bon Appetit and they're in there and that's remarkable and fantastic. And we're so happy. It's such a beautiful thing. I mean, and anyone who watches this will fall in love and want to be best friends with all of the contemporary people and then be in awe of all the historical people. I think when you were talking about the entrepreneurs, I also loved the catering history in Philadelphia. Do you want to just talk about that a little bit? The catering families were really important because they went from being butlers into creating these incredible spreads for people where they were renting silverware and providing food and catering and everything where there had been nothing like that before. I mean, they actually sort of created the entire notion of of catering. And not only that, but they were providing work for so many people who had just were coming out of slavery. So that early period of time was fascinating. It was a new entrepreneurial job. And Robert Bogle, there's ditties about him in Philadelphia, about his career and how fantastic he was. And we were lucky enough to connect with his family, the Dutrells in Philadelphia, who had recently discovered this rich history that they had and found the menus from their family's catering company and Omar. Tate was able to recreate some of the beautiful things that were on the menu, the Bellevue broth, which we didn't taste, but looks like this very beautiful, creamy chicken broth and seafood broth. With whipped cream in it. I was like, ooh, that was so cool. And the parsley looked so beautiful. It's like, it looked like the most beautiful, simple soup that Omar Tate recreated. And I think one of the really important things that we get to see in the show is family and tradition. And it was so beautiful seeing that the family looking back and the pride that they showed in this tradition that they had and being able to pass it on and seeing the photographs of 
with their family and furs and the beautiful cars. And that pride is is really something that I think is a big element of the show. When you talk about families and we're talking about families in the U.S. who are shown in the doc, it also makes me think of the descendant of, I guess it was Sally Hemings, not James Henning, who was the, the chef. But was it hard to find these people? And how did you find her and what's her role in the world right now? Are you talking about Gail Jessup White, who is Hemings' niece? Exactly, niece. She's the great, 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 maybe she's three greats niece of James. <laughs> I think the thing that was incredible, I think she said, we're standing here today because of our ancestors and their strength, and they represent the very best of the United States. I think like I cried when she said that. It was such a beautiful moment to realize that James Hemings had brought this stew stove, this mac and cheese, and just to be able to tell her story and that she's a part of that story, I think is phenomenal. I just want to land on that mac and cheese for a minute. It was probably my hungriest moment of all the hours. The macaroni is cooked in milk, which sounds amazing, and then layered with shredded, it looks like cheddar, but back in the day, and butter, and then more milk-soaked pasta and then more butter and cheddar and then like in a fireplace and I was like wow okay that's where mac and cheese comes from this is great to know this is very important what was your thought about the balance between struggle and celebration and the way you wanted to convey that tension in the show well, we wanted to explore both sides. I mean, I think that we're, we're all quite familiar with the struggles, but also in the midst of those struggles, there's, you know, incredible artistry and resilience. And we're still going through that right now. So I think it's it was very important to illuminate that in the series and to not gloss over it, but also despite all these, we continue to rise. And I think that's super important message for you know African Americans, for all people to have a witness for. In the series, when you're talking about the ancestors and standing on the shoulders of ancestors and carrying the traditions through families and legacy and struggle. It makes me think of the, you know, maybe the hardest I cried, which was in the first episode in Ouija. And I'm hoping you can take the listeners back to the path that the enslaved walked to then go to an uncertain and horrible, but uncertain at the time, destiny. I mean, I think we went to these crossroads and looked down the road, which was the road to where people left the shores of Africa for enslavement. And it's just dusty, red earth, one lane roads. I'm sure it was Stephen described it as the same color red earth in Georgia. It's just, it's a very haunting. And we had this beautiful historian there who's telling the story in French and Fabienne was translating. And it's very strange to look down this path and see this road where people actually traveled. You know, it's really real. It's not something that you can recreate. And then when we came to the place of the ancestors and we all, after Jessica and Stephen did, we all lit candles for our ancestors and said prayers there. And the skies opened up and there was a deluge of rain. I, I mean, it was a very, very deep, meaningful period. It was very intense. 
the, the scene with Jessica and Steven, you know, it, it's, it's very real. It's, it's a part of our history. And to be there, you could feel it's just like a very heavy place. It has heavy vibes, I, I guess is for lack of a better word. I feel in that moment that Jessica was Steven's guide. She had been there and she really was leading him through this journey that he wanted to take with her and it was beyond beautiful and that we were all able to be there and witness it was very special. You mentioned that Stephen was on a journey and the four episodes, you know, that he's grappling and asking very serious, very important, very pointed questions. It feels like, you know, it's an emotional journey for him for understanding um, the roots of African-American food and understanding where it came from. And I don't want to say coming to peace with the outcome, but learning there's celebrations along the way. And I I wondered for the two of you, um, because his journey is recorded, I'm wondering from behind the scenes, from picking up the book and then making this, what was your journey like? Was this a journey for you as well? Did you start in one place and then as human beings feel like you sort of ended in a different place at the other side? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, Karis and I, we had been doing lifestyle content, as you mentioned. And after the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson, we just wanted to sink our teeth into something and something that meant something, something that was beyond what we had been doing. The kids had gotten older. We could devote more time to really digging in and finding a real project because it's all it's so hard to get things made. So let's if we're going to make something and it's hard to make, let's like make it really mean something. And, you know, so it started there and it was it was definitely, you know, the moment we were we were in Africa. We talked about this earlier today and we're like all smushed into an elevator. It's like Stephen, Jessica, the DP, Roger, Karis and I in this tiny little elevator. And it just was like an unglamorous place, but a really deep journey that brought us there. I mean, we're we're moms, you know, it was such a huge undertaking. But at the same time, it felt predetermined and destined. And it was such a happy moment as well. So there were lots of other things that happened along the way. Uh, My dad had passed away like the day before we went in and pitched to Netflix. And it was really intense, but Roger had flown in from New York. We weren't going to reschedule. I told Karis, don't tell anybody, you know, what just happened because we just really wanted to nail it. There was nothing more for me to do. And I was with him and, um, wow, we killed it. (laughs) (laughs) Like the whole team, it was just like, and you felt like, I mean, from that point forth, it just felt like all our ancestors were like converging and to like, just bring this to light. And I mean, at least I felt really bolstered by that and bolstered by getting this made. So it means a lot to me, the, the journey. And I'm super, super grateful for the experience of making this project. So with that thought, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. 
You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly. And today we're talking about the extraordinary docu-series High on the Hog. In creating this... Was there anything that you felt unprepared for? You know, it was very emotional as a viewer and I think probably as a participant. What was it like for you? Was there anything that you were unprepared for either in dealing with the putting it together or in the execution? You know, I can tell you one thing we were not prepared for is how much it rained in Benin. Like sometimes maybe three or four hours in the day and then we'd go out and shoot for a couple of hours and then have to like run for cover. And I mean, that was like, even in the Dan Topka market, we were underneath, I think there's like a, a shot of some, something that looks like beignets. Uh, they're called, I think, Acapon, um, which is essentially like drop donuts. And uh, if you look really close at the scene, you can see there's water dripping down because we were like kind of scrunched in this like teeny little area and with uh, one of the camera people and he's just like well I guess I'm just going to shoot here because we can't go anywhere (laughs) so that's one of the things but you know the whole process was like again it just was kismet I mean Roger was amazing Netflix was amazing the whole team, we really were very intentional about people that we wanted to talk to, the stories that we wanted to tell. Shoshana, the showrunner, was really, really open to who we were interviewing and why. And, you know, because we had been working on this for almost uh, a year and a half by the time we started shooting. And Karis and I are the only people that really were foodies, you know, like had the Instagram and knew all these people. So it was in essence, like we, we had a lot of information and then, you know, just the collaboration, it just made it that much, much easier to tell these stories. And it just kind of came together so beautifully. I think there were so many things that came across, you know, that Chris Williams was with Tony Tipton Martin when she had her book coming out and, he was making all that beautiful food. There were just like a lot of things that hooked together that Omar Tate could be with the Dutrell family and make this catering exquisite feast for them. Those things were just, I mean, they weren't luck because we were trying to make them happen, but it just, they were so beautifully gifted to us that we feel very lucky that all of those things could happen. I thought that the Gabrielle Etienne 
segment was so special because she's on her family's land and we learn in that episode that her family is going to be forcibly removed from the land because of imminent domain, which as they say, like sounds like such an innocuous word, but it really means that you are dispossessed. Is that something that was important to you that you knew beforehand or you identified her and the beautiful work she's doing and then you discovered as you were filming that this was the night before, I believe it's her uncle Andrew, is going to be moved from his house. Yeah, we that we did not know beforehand. We love her. She's amazing and just such a beautiful spirit and so connected to, to her family and the land. She was originally just part of the all-night pig roast, the hog roast. And then Roger was just like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. So they carved out like a special like scene and we shot her. And then the story unfolded and that was beautiful and also incredibly sad. But we were really grateful to be able to get that. I think also the way that she was able to point out that it was, you know, where she was sitting with Stephen, where she was picking the cabbage that they were going to have for supper, that it was just on the other side of that. You know, it makes it very real with her tears and her uncle not feeling like he could sit down for the dinner. Those stories are really painful. And I think we didn't want to shy away from that because those stories are real. Yes, it felt to me incredibly important to to see that unfurl in real time, how painful that is, and also how unfair. I've read that story about African Americans being kicked off the land or not getting the land that they are promised, and to see it happen in 2021 was excruciating. I feel like, you know, in the scene with Jarrell, she's very teary and she's talking about baking as a way to express herself and also baking as a feeling of empowerment. Those two feelings lie in, in many of us. And I think it's like there is the verge of tears and there also is that joyful cutting of the pie and sharing in the joy. I think if there's too much tears and anger, people tend to turn away. And I think the balance is the beauty. From doing this, is there anything that you will never look at in the same way again, a place, a food, an idea? Oh, well, hello, mac and cheese. How about that? Um, our modern stove, that's come forever changed. And can you explain why? Well, James Hemings, he went with Thomas Jefferson to Paris and trained with French chefs over there and brought back, you know, it was called like a potager, which is kind of like the precursor to our modern stove. But before that, there was just hearth cooking. That is astonishing. Are there any stories that you couldn't include because they didn't work in the narrative, things that got left out you want to share? I think there still are stories to tell. I mean, the book continues on. The series right now stops at Juneteenth and Emancipation. So there's a lot more to tell. At the end of each of my podcasts, I ask my guests if there's a woman they'd love to give a shout out to, someone who deserves to be better known. And I wonder if you might have some people in mind for that. Yeah, Ashton Berry. She's a sommelier. She's a classically trained sommelier. 
but she also has this uh, nonprofit that she runs called uh, Radical Exchange, and it's about people of color within the hospitality, and it's about sort of being aware of the narrative and sort of kind of upending the narrative of people in the hospitality industry. Well, thank you guys for so so much for coming on the show and sharing some behind the scenes thoughts. And also just thank you for putting this work into the world. It's a beautiful piece of work. And I hope that every single person who's listening watches and learns as I did and, and goes through the emotional swings of the joy that you capture and also the struggle that's very, very real. So thank you for putting this out in the world and thanks for spending time with me. And to all of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll be back again next week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.